I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Gerald Chertavian, founder of Year Up, an organization that provides a one-year intensive job training and internship program to low-income young urban adults 18 to 24 years old. Year Up enrolls close to 2,000 students per year, and roughly 400 organizations have hired Year Up students as interns or permanent employees since its inception in 2000. Prior to launching Europe, Gerald was an internet entrepreneur. His company, Conduit Communications, was sold for $80 million in 1999. Gerald is a graduate of Bowdoin College and Harvard Business School. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jessica. You've had a career in business prior to launching Europe. Uh, you worked at Chemical Bank, now part of J.P. Morgan Chase, and you helped to turn around an internet company. Yet you've been civic-minded from an early age. For instance, in college at Bowdoin, you joined a Big Brother, Big Sister program. Where did this sensibility come from? You know, I remember the day I uh, was in my the mailroom at Bowdoin and went to my mailbox, and there was a flyer and talked about the Big Brothers program. And I think maybe being uh, the youngest of two and always wanting someone to take care of, to look after, it struck me as a, a great thing to get involved with. And that was my first experience and absolutely loved it. And in many ways, it changed my life by introducing me uh, to a young boy in New York City who ultimately became the inspiration for Year Up. You were at Bowdoin. Now, this is in Maine, uh, yet the Big Brothers program that you connected with, was that in Maine? Yes, it was in Maine, and the young boy I was matched with lived in a, um, what would be called, I guess, a trailer park uh, in Maine. And uh, I remember um, one weekend his mom said, uh, would you mind watching my son because I have to do some things? I thought she meant for a few hours. Um, that was the whole weekend. You grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, and your family is from Armenia. There were lots of mills in Lowell, and many of the mills were connected to making products made of wool, mm -hmm. but your grandfather was allergic to wool. He unfortunately started in the mills and realized that being allergic to wool, uh, the mills probably weren't his, his uh, industry of choice, and uh, ended up uh, buying a very small um, shoeshine business and cobbler uh, business that he literally worked at seven days a week for probably 50 years and never took a day off. And I remember that he put four children through college working as a cobbler. My own father, uh, when he came back from World War II, through the GI Bill, was able to go to Tufts Dental School. While you were growing up in Lowell, Massachusetts, you had a number of jobs. What, what were some of those? Uh, well, my dad believed that uh, work was something to be started early in life. So I had done everything from from bus tables to pump gas to run an ice cream counter to work at a golf course. At one point, I drove uh, high-risk young people around the city on a work duty for the summer. Uh -huh. They were about 16 years old, and uh, we went around the city and did work duty, kind of raking and cleaning up the city. And every time I left the van, they, they would try to take it. Or um, they'd say, Gerald, stop the car at the, at the uh, grocery store. And I'd stop, and they'd come running out, having stolen a bunch of stuff, and I said, you know, what are you guys doing? They said, look, man, we got to eat. We got no money. And uh, but I did say I'd, I fell in love with them, and that was another experience I had that I realized I need to be working with young people because I just get huge energy out of it. Just as your year up students uh, have internships for for six months, you too had an internship or two in your day. Can you describe one or two of them? One um, summer internship I had that was a little bit more like the year up summer internships. I worked in Washington and wrote about 40 letters. Only one person responded, 
and gave me an unpaid internship in Washington for a lobbyist. And I remember so well because a gentleman said to me, Joe, could you please write a memo? And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't know what a memo is. And he looked at me and he kind of growled and he said, it goes to, from, date, and re. <laughs> and then you draw a line and you write a memo. And I said, wow, I never, no one ever told me that before. And then you think about the parallel to our young adults today, not knowing what some of these basic professional things are. And luckily, someone taught me when I was 18 in Washington in an internship. And that's where I learned what a memo was. The seed for Europe, uh, you said, was inspired by your little brother. His name is David Heredia, who is living in New York. He's from the Dominican Republic. Talk about the nature of your relationship with David. Uh, so David, I remember the day I met David in the social worker, a caseworker from Big Brothers, brought us into the uh, housing complex on the Lower East Side. And I remember riding the rickety elevator up to the 18th floor and those you know, elevators are kind of dirty. They don't smell that good. Um, and I remember walked in the door, and it was a tiny little apartment. Um, probably six folks were living there. Um, and uh, tried to speak Spanish as best I could. David's mom doesn't speak, Span- uh, doesn't speak English that well. I remember kind of falling in love with this beautiful young 10-year-old boy right away. What I didn't realize is he looked at me and said, Oh, my goodness, a white guy. I have no idea what to expect. I actually have never had a relationship with someone like this. David's, you know, over the years, you know, I do treat him very similarly to my, my biological children. And uh, he's now married. He's got two beautiful children, a third almost on the way in the next few weeks. He's college educated, went for the School for Visual Arts. He runs his own animation company. And so I really saw that he's this beautiful, hungry, motivated young man and wanted so bad just for him to realize his potential. It's always hard to think about the counterfactual, but... How do you think you changed the trajectory of of his life? So, uh, as David would say himself, he would have made, he would have done okay somehow. Um, What he said is, Gerald exposed me to things, whether they were experiences, networks, connections, uh, helped me navigate things like higher education. Indeed, we're blessed to help um, support his financial, his education financially. But David was a good man who was going to make it. So I, I'm very suspect of the idea that anyone changes someone's life. I think you can give someone opportunity, and then they can take control of their lives the way they want to. And it's to us at Year Up always been a respectful way to look at what we're doing. You were a big brother to him since the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. What did that mean? Uh, just you know, in your was it a daily interaction you had with him, a weekly one? Uh, I, I spend every Saturday of my life with David, and I was religious about it, and um, we spend the whole day together. And I did bringing my thoughts, David, do you want to play basketball or baseball? And he'd say, no, I just want to draw. So from day one, we'd go to the art store and buy pens and pencils and crayons, and, and he would draw. And I, to this day, I can see an image of David sleeping with paper on his chest as he's been drawing incessantly with ideas and creativity throughout the night and then finally just passed out mm-hmm. from being uh, so tired. You mention in your book uh, that when you you live in Boston, but when you come to New York City uh, from the airport, you ask the taxi driver to drive uh, past his house on the FDR Drive just so you could see his old apartment and remember the seed of Europe. Absolutely. Every taxi I take that goes in and out of New York City, we go by David's apartment. I can see the exact window uh, where his uh, apartment is. You know, when you, when you dedicate your life to this type of work, it's so important to always connect with why do you do this. 
And for us, it's about social and economic justice. And all of that started in that little window in that apartment in New York City. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is a social entrepreneur, Gerald Chertavian. He's the founder of Year Up, a workforce development program that teaches technical and professional skills to disadvantaged young adults. Year Up then places its students into internships and full-time jobs at leading corporations. David was the inspiration for your starting uh, Year Up, but it, it took you a decade or so before you actually launched it. But proof that you actually had the idea was in your application to Harvard Business School, where you wrote about starting an organization committed to workforce development. Can you talk about that for a moment? Sure. I remember writing that essay. I was working at Chemical Bank at the time. And honestly, I didn't have a copy of it because it was in the 80s. We were writing on old typewriters. But one day I got a a letter from Harvard Business School. This was probably 2005. And in it was a um, a copy of the original document that I had written on the old typeface. And it was from the director of admissions at Harvard Business School. And he said, basically, you done good, kid. You did what you said you were going to do. Prior to going to Harvard Business School, you worked at Chemical Bank. What did you do for Chemical Bank? So I worked in uh, what was then called the Financial Services Division. And we were proving the the credit for folks doing things like interest rate swaps and FX deals. Uh, And at that point, people didn't really understand a lot of the credit risk inherent in those transactions. What was critical about Chemical Bank was my boss. Um, my uh, original gentleman who hired me, uh, Doug George, really gave me my chance. You know, I what, can't, what do I, you mean? Well, I came down to Wall Street to interview at Morgan Stanley, at Solomon Brothers, at all these places. And you know what? I didn't know anything about finance. My dad was a dentist. And so as I went into these interviews, kind of green, um, I probably didn't have the right color suit on. I hadn't had all that training. And so I was leaving New York City with my kind of tail between my legs saying I didn't get a job. My sister-in-law had worked for Doug George back in the earlier 80s. said, well, before you leave, just talk to this gentleman. I, t- I went and met with him. He said, you know what? You should apply for a job here. I did. I got hired. I'm sure I had a leg up, a year up in Doug George. And then he asked me to come work with him in the division he was starting a chemical uh, called Financial Services Division, which is now significant. Now, luckily, you had somebody like him to latch on to. Um, but outside of that relationship, did you feel fulfilled in the work you were doing? So uh, finance for me was always incredibly intellectually stimulating and fulfilling, and I love economics. But I always knew there was a bit of a void from the uh, meaningful aspect. So I knew it was intellectually stimulating, but it didn't uh, kind of make my soul smile. After Chemical Bank and Harvard Business School, uh, you ended up turning around a software development internet company called Conduit Communications. Uh, you and your wife invested $80,000 in 8% of the company, uh, and the company grew to over 130 employees, $20 million in revenue, and you sold Conduit in 1999 for $80 million. Interestingly, you sold all of your shares in a single trade, feeling the internet bubble. Can you talk to me about uh, just the the uh, the boisterous nature of that time period? If one recalls back in the 99, um, there was such an amount of exuberance in the market. And when we sold that organization, we knew it was uh, what we were paid for. It was probably more than it was worth. And, and so we looked at each other and we said a sentence which to me sticks in my mind, which is bulls and bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. And so at that point, we really knew that it was valued probably too highly. Um, We uh, decided it was time to uh, 
cash out, so to speak. And I remember I did one uh, block trade uh, for those shares. Uh, and I remember the gentleman, one of my close friends, who's a block trader, who helped me do it. And he kind of clicked on his phone, and then he just clicked back to me and said, you're done. Hmm. And I knew at that point that what that meant was I had a chance to now start year up. And for me, it was not I'm done. It's your beginning on a different journey. And I don't for a minute think that all the good times we had in the 90s were down to brains or brilliant or anything. We were fortunate. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Gerald Chertavian, founder of Year Up. We'll hear more from Gerald coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Gerald Chertavian, founder of Year Up, an organization that provides a one-year intensive job training and internship program to low-income young urban adults 18 to 24 years old. Now, you founded Year Up, uh, and your your wife, Kate, uh, was supportive from the get-go. For instance, you you knew you wouldn't accept any income for the first 10 years, although the board insisted after six years that, that you earn an income. How did you meet Kate, by the way? So Kate and I met surreptitiously uh, in Cambridge, although I was living in New York City and she was living in London. We both traveled via plane to the same party uh, on St. Patrick's Day 1990 in, in Cambridge, of all places, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, we met, um, we knew we connected, and I remember I uh, t- faxed her, these were in the days of faxes, and said, come meet me in Thailand in four months which she had the the courage to do. And after two weeks together, we decided we were going to get married. And the facts came after just a couple hours of, of meeting her. After. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, she decided she had to have a picture of me uh, because, you know, four months after you've only known someone for a few hours, you kind of forget what they look like. So uh, she got off the plane with a photo so she could identify me in the in the Thai airport in Bangkok. So you you decided to launch Year Up, uh, and I want to talk about those early days. What was harder for you uh, in the beginning? What comes to mind? We had lived in London for t- almost 10 years when I was uh, running with my partners, Conduit Communications. So when we moved back here, although I'd gone to business school in Boston, um, I really didn't have a network. So I was so fortunate. A gentleman, Craig Underwood, said one day when I talked to him, what can I do to help you? I said, well, you are you know, a partner at Bain & Company. You know all these people. Can you just get me like 10 meetings? And he literally chased down everyone he knew, walked with me to every meeting, said, here's a guy I trust and I believe in. Will you give them a chance? And these are people who could provide financial as well as operational support around Boston. That's right. Largely the internships that they provided for our young people, which got us out of the gate. Um, so it was hard to make those connections. And also, we didn't have any proof points. So when people said, have you done this before? No. Gerald, have you ever started a school before? No. Have you ever run a nonprofit? No. Um, have you ever taught anyone these skills? No. Why am I to trust you? Um, and we said, if it doesn't work, don't pay us, don't contribute to us, right. you know, pay us on results. A lot of these internships started out as internet-oriented internships, and you needed to kind of pivot ultimately to larger corporations. That's right. Just by quick kind of context, students spend six months in training, then six months in an internship, and that makes their one year, hence the name year up, um, a year that they move up. We sold all those first internships to the science and Viance and 
you know, the internet companies of the day. And unfortunately, they all called me up and said, our business is now imploding. Um, we can't do this. So we quickly changed to teach folks what is called desktop support or help desk support, how you support technology. And then it was leaders in the Boston community who gave us a chance to place students into those jobs. How about uh, the challenges that you faced with the, the young adults, these 18 to 24-year-olds? I mean, overall, they come from very disadvantaged backgrounds. But can you provide an example of w- what that means on a granular level? Sure. The, um, I was listening to just a young man the other day, and he spoke at graduation. And each community in Europe names themselves, right? They have a name. The name of this community was Go Hard or Go Home. And he gave a speech at graduation. He said, you know, for me, having grown up in 18 different homes and having lived in shelters, I knew I had no option to go home. So I had to go hard. A lot of these students, um, you know, were, you, you mentioned that, that's, that one or some of them might have gotten shot at, at one point or... So many, uh, many of our students, very sadly, have been very close to violence. I would say there's barely a student we serve who hasn't had a close friend, family member involved in a, in a shooting uh, or a homicide. Sadly, many of our students will show signs of, of uh, trauma from having experienced really tough and violent neighborhoods. And we've uh, very sadly lost a few of our students to violence over the years. Um, some, I can remember one young man at 3.30 in the afternoon, he was handing in his paper you know, with a smile on his face and an expert in technology. And at five o'clock, someone shot him five times in the back. And he was not in a gang. He was not involved in criminal activity. But he was at the wrong place at the wrong time in a very violent neighborhood, which had gang wars. And so he was of an ethnicity that was on one side of that gang war. The people who come to Europe, they're, these people are motivated to want to uh, join the, your program. You still face, though, issues with motivation and, and time management, for example. Time management is a big issue for you. What exactly does that mean? So we know that to, get a, to keep a knowledge-based job today, you've got to show up on time. You've got to have a great attitude. You've got to be a team player. You have to communicate well. And so a lot of our students, our young adults, um, haven't actually had an opportunity to learn what we call the ABCs, attitudinal, behavioral, and communication skills that you need to hold a job at Google or Goldman Sachs or the federal government. And so what we do is really focus hard on helping young people learn those skills, which are called non-cognitive skills, which you can learn pretty quickly. And that's uh, we've been complimented many, many times that our students have better professional skills than a college graduate who's never really learned what does it take to exist in a corporate environment. We talked before about uh, the challenge in getting corporations to provide internships. Uh, what about recruitment uh, of the, the first class uh, at, at Europe? How was that? Boy, the first class was certainly uh, harder than the, the 101st class, I'll tell you that. The challenge is if you say we're gonna, you're going to earn money while you learn, you're going to get taught by great teachers, and we're going to give you an internship, A lot of folks said, too good to be true. What's the catch? So we had to really prove that we were authentic and we delivered what we said. And now, uh, once we get going in a community, it's probably 70% word of mouth. These candidates for the first class, uh, they showed up at the Hancock Tower in in Boston, which is a prominent feature in the Boston skyline. Many of these candidates had never been to an office building. Can you describe that experience for them? It's intimidating for someone who not only has not been in an office building 
maybe has never been above four or five stories in their lives. And so now they'll imagine looking out the glass at 51st floor of the Hancock Tower. Um, it's also hard as you're a young person of color going through the security desk. There's often you're going to be looked at a few more times. Someone's going to say, do you really have an appointment here? The reason we were in the Hancock Tower is there was a venture capital firm who let us start in their offices. And they're called Alta Communications. And they heard what we were doing. Their managing general partner, Tim Dibble, he said, what are you trying to do? And I told him, he said, well, why don't you start it here? I've got a few spare desks. So imagine starting a nonprofit on the 51st floor of the Hancock Tower. And as Tim often said, you know, some of our limited partners would come in and see these young adults sitting in the lobby and think, are you running a youth center or a venture capital firm? I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Gerald Chertavian, the founder of Year Up, an organization committed to narrowing the opportunity divide by providing technical and professional skills to students ages 18 to 24 from disadvantaged backgrounds. The program is one year long. Half of the year is dedicated to rigorous training, and the other half involves an internship at a company which pays each Year Up student for his or her work. I'd love to to get more of a sense of that first class at Europe. What about the people uh, who who didn't make it through your program? So the uh, in fact that first class as well, we uh, two young adults didn't graduate, so we had twenty out of twenty two graduate. Uh, one young man, he just couldn't get there on time, and so we tried and we tried and we bought the alarm clocks and we called to wake him up and and eventually he fired himself from the program, which is really intentional language we use. He then joined the military, which we thought was probably a good choice because it got him back on track and on time. Um, but he just couldn't adhere to those professional standards. Um, I can think of... Uh, was that just due to his own motivation or circumstances? Uh, I think that one was his own motivation. Another young man, one young man uh, I've worked so hard with, I really did invest probably too much of myself into. And one day he just stopped showing up didn't call, didn't show, nothing, just stopped showing up. And we were really worried that something had happened to him. I remember he called me about six months later. He said, Gerald, I'm really sorry. He said, can I tell you what happened? He said, I got home one night and no one was there. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, my parents moved, changed the locks, and didn't tell me. And he said, and I just couldn't handle it. And at that point, coming to Europe every day just didn't make a lot of sense for me. And so Sometimes the trauma our young people face can be significant and throw them off course. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember that story really well. I will tell you one story um, about a young man who uh, was in my um, backyard the other night for a barbecue. And he was shaking his head as he sat on the bench. He said, I never thought I'd be here. He said, you know, I had unfortunately spent a year of my life in a juvenile um, detention. Um, and, and the reason I spent time there is because I protected my mother against my father. That's what landed me in juvenile detention. Hmm. And I have never before or since been violent, but I couldn't take watching my uh, mom be uh, abused anymore. He said, I never thought anyone would want me after that. Um, he then finished our program, worked at a major financial institution, State Street, currently works at another major financial institution. Uh, he manages 15 people. He has his college degree. He has a beautiful son. And so these are incredibly moving stories, not of exceptional. This is not exceptionalism, right? This is not about, wow, a miracle person. This is about if you give someone a chance and an opportunity in this country, 
they will take it and do well and be your next best employee because our young adults don't want handouts. They want hand-ups. I want to talk about philanthropy uh, for a moment and how you raised funds for Year Up. Uh, you mentioned in your book, A Year Up, that you were always frustrated when somebody said to you, a potential donor said to you, you know, it costs $25,000 a year to fund a Year Up student. That seems like a lot of money. What was your response to them? I often w- would talk to that person and say, gee, do you have um, uh, children yourself? And they may say someone who's 50, 60 years old. So oh, I do. I said, did, did they go to college? He said, yeah, we had one at Princeton and one at Yale. And so, oh, so congratulations, really. What a gift and a joy to be able to support your children in those fine institutions. I said, I'm curious, how much, how much did that cost? He said, well, it's, you know, it's about $53,000 a year. I said, oh, did they go for one year? He said, no, they go for four years. I said, okay, so it's actually like $200,000-plus. And I said, so why would that not be considered expensive uh, versus spending a tenth of that on a low-income individual who hadn't had the same access and opportunity in their lives and really get people thinking about who's worthy of investment. In 2011, through the Clinton Global Initiative, you launched the PTC, which is a professional training corps, uh, which is modeled after ROTC, or ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training. Can you describe what the professional training corps is? We, we grew year up very uh, fortunately from 2000 to 2012 to serve almost 2,000 young people a year. But we then started to think, what would it take to touch 100,000 people? Because the challenge we're trying to address is measured in the millions. It's almost 20% of all young people today in America. So we then started to look at, could we create a program modeled after ROTC except ra- and put it not in a four-year college, but put it in a two-year college, in a community college, and rather than wear military fatigues, you'd wear business attire. Rather than study Microsoft, uh, rather than study military maneuvering, you'd study Microsoft mouse moves. And rather than go on a field training exercise, you'd go on an internship with a Fortune 500 company. Given your focus on these two-year community colleges and and skills training for for young adults, what is your view of liberal liberal arts four-year college system? You know, there's been a lot of debate about that being overrated. We believe that uh, we're going to see a a fundamental rethink of higher education in this country. And it's not an either or. You know, the the reality is and the statistics would tell us that the more education you get, the more likely you are to earn more money. So there's a positive correlation there. But if you look at what percent of adults in this country have a four-year degree that they got between the ages of 18 and 22, it's only 8%. Hmm. So 92% of adults in this country don't have a four-year degree that they got between the ages of 18 and 22. That's, that's an incredibly important statistic, as is the other statistic that half of all the people who go to college today work full-time. Right. So what we have to do is expand our view of what is college, and I think with both technology coming into play and how that's affecting and disrupting education and just the need of our economy, we will not recognize higher education in 30 years' time. In many ways, David was the inspiration for for Europe. In what other ways has has David been involved in in Europe? David has always been not only the inspiration for Europe, but along the way, he'd be uh, definitely one of my sources of encouragement. And he really taught me a great deal about race, about racism in this country. Um, I can tell you many times when I'd be with David and we'd be out to dinner at a nice restaurant, someone would come up to him and say. Hey, here's my keys. Can you get my BMW for me? And he'd say, excuse me? He'd say, yeah, yeah, you're the valet, right? Hmm. 
And so I remember saying to David, does this happen all the time? He said, Gerald, if I get mad every time that happens, I'd be an angry young man. And it reminds me also the first time I took him to Long Island, and here we're on the beach together in Southampton, and a young boy came up and tried to rub the black off his stomach. And so this young boy, probably never been close to a person of color, and went up and was touching him to see if it came off. Your mother was an important person in your life. She died uh, of cancer in 2000. Can you talk about that a little more, if you feel comfortable? Of, of course, yeah. The, um, so my mom was, uh, she had breast cancer. She had metastasized a bone cancer, and she was terminal for about uh, five years. Uh, and, you know, the best lesson I learned throughout that whole thing is my dad took care of her every single second of every single day. And what it told me, what it showed me was one of my best lessons is when you say in sickness and in health, it actually means something. You know, they were married for, goodness, since 1955 and had had a wonderful marriage. And I remember my dad saying, you know, Gerald, if the last five years are me taking care of your mom while she's in bed, um, then so be it. I'm going to greet that with a smile. And I tell you, you can take a wedding vow, but when you see it being lived, it's an indelible mark about what those things mean. And I, you know, I, I saw that through my dad. My mom was the, the kind of, if you had a tough mind and a tender heart, you know, my mom was the tender heart. Mm. And I was very kind, very giving. She would counsel other cancer patients. Mm. And I can remember her being on the phone for hours and hours at a time, cancer, counseling someone who just got diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and uh, the line for her funeral, I swear, was <laughs> about a mile long. Only, my only sad regret is I decided to start year up uh, the month after she passed away, so I never get a chance to tell her. Uh, my dad always comes to graduations, and he says, oh, your mom would have loved this. And I say, ah, she's probably seen it somehow. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, um, in 1999, before she died, she gave you a clip of a newspaper from Dear Abby. Is that her? So, Gerald, you just showed me a picture of your beautiful mother, and here you are in your wallet carrying this newspaper clipping several years later. Could I ask you to read just a, a portion of it? Sure. My mom was a, was a Dear Abby fan, and uh, this was uh, the, it was called The Dilemma, and it was about taking risk in life. And it, it talks about the person who risks nothing, has nothing, does nothing, is nothing. He or she may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he or she can't learn, feel, grow, change, or love. The last line of it says, only a person who takes risks is free. And, you know, it's interesting, Jessica, when I just started to, decided to start Year Up, it was the first time in my life I felt free. Mm-hmm. I can absolutely say it was like when you take off in an airplane, you know when you first take off, it's bumpy, and then all of a sudden it goes pin drop quiet. It's absolutely silent because you got to a different level of the atmosphere. And that calmness was exactly what I got when I made the decision to start Year Up. I didn't care what anyone thought. My wife and I decided it was the right thing to do. We did it, and it certainly made me feel free. Well, don't lose that wallet, Gerald. (laughs) I'll try not to, Jessica. It's been with me for 20-odd years. It's staying right in the pocket. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. I appreciate it. My guest has been Gerald Chertavian, founder of Year Up. Coming up, we'll hear from Michael and Rick Mast, founders of Mast Brothers Chocolate. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. 